Hi, folks. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. I'm Bale Musitz, a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the recently retired David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. First, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoy creating it. Second, a lot of you ask me, why am I doing a podcast? And Bela and I talk a lot about this, and it's certainly not to make money. Uh, the two of us are here. We like to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world's changing, how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. And we like to overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've each learned over three plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people we've met recently to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. This week, I spoke to Jeremy Redman. We had a nonlinear conversation about entrepreneurship, leadership, culture, and how to define, build, and adjust them in an organ- as an organization evolves. I really enjoyed the conversation with Jeremy, and uh, we had a really good time sort of riffing on various different topics. So, Mike, what was one of the things that sort of uh, jumped out at you as something uh, our listeners should uh, tune in on? Well, this was an interesting take on an age-old question, and he, Jeremy really focused on what are the keys to effective leadership and how can one learn or develop these? So I think that's something for the audience to kind of key in on, and, and how does he define leadership and how does he think that leaders, leaders can develop? Um, and then the second related point was about culture uh, and how can an organization develop an effective culture uh, in terms of the people and the processes and how people make decisions. So um, I think there'll be a lot here that, that the listeners will be able to take away from. Yeah, I agree, Mike. Uh, I think those were two key points, certainly ones that uh, I would focus on. So with that, uh, let's jump right into the interview with uh, Jeremy Redman. Hello, listeners. It's Bela here. Uh, this week's guest is Jeremy Redman. Uh, he is a founder of several companies and uh, is a, uh, I will say, a Michigan State accounting dropout. Is that okay to say, Jeremy? That's okay. I, that was one of the biggest things. Sorry to interrupt the intro, but that was one of the biggest times where I felt like I was going to become a leader, Yeah. which is when I dropped out of grad school. Yeah. And I go, oh, no. no that's all this. good. Hey, there's there's plenty of, you know, and being in higher ed like I am, um I always Uh-oh. have this debate with uh, Jeepers, you know, uh, are we doing something right or are we doing something wrong? So, uh, I, so- would say, I would say the only thing wrong, the reason I dropped out really was because they told me that, um, one, they think negotiation, they thought that was a class worth paying thousands of dollars for. Yeah. And then two, I vehemently think that more often than not, leaders, leaders can be taught by trial and fire. Yes. But like, I really believe that. I don't think it can be taught in a classroom. Yeah. So So, like there was a leadership class that I had to, and I was like, no, this, I can't do this. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, so here's my theory on leadership, entrepreneurship, et cetera. And and then I'll introduce you. (laughs) Uh, Then I'll ask my first question. So I think it's, I draw an analogy to music. So there are some people that are born with the music gene turned on. And, and all you got to do is not screw it up. And, and, those, and those are the greats, whether it's the Beethovens, the Bachs, or the Eric Claptons, whoever you want to pick, right? Those are folks that are born and that gene is turned on. The rest of the world, if we put in our 10,000 hours, as they say, we'll be pretty good. We're, sure. we're, we're not going to be like Beethoven. We're not going to be like Eric Clapton, but we'll be pretty good, right? And we can probably make a living at it. But there's certain individuals, you know, if you want to talk about Steve Jobs or, you know, Wozniak or any, any, whoever you want to pick, right? Those folks are anomalies because that gene was turned on. The rest of us, the gene's not turned on, but there's a lot you can do to get yourself to be a reasonable Uh, leader, a reasonable entrepreneur, et cetera. So that's my theory. I I could not. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm my authentic self on these and my own podcast now that I wasn't three years ago. But this is that if I 
I would not talk as much crap. It, is it? Can we swear on this podcast? Or not? I'd rather you didn't, because then I gotta put. Okay, great. Uh, I, I'll have great, to keep great, it great. clean. Okay. Uh, <laughs> or I'll try at least. Uh, if that would have been the philosophy in that class, yeah, I may have stuck around. Yeah, there you but go. that is like everyone can be elite. And I'm like, uh, the people everyone's bringing up in this course, right? Like Bill Clinton, uh, Steve, jo- like you're saying, yeah, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos. I'm like, no, no, no. These people, these these people aren't even like my life. I might never get to that. And I think like I'm the greatest thing to happen to entrepreneurship. Right. Maybe. Right. You okay. know, like. No. Okay. But yeah, let's, oh, let's go back to the intro. So I'm yeah. today I'm here with Jeremy Redmond. So Jeremy, here's my first question for you. If you're at a uh, social event, the networking event, and someone comes okay. up to you and says, oh, hey, pleasure to meet you, Jeremy. And, and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I say I entrepreneur. So I entrepreneur and I contribute right for uh, entrepreneur magazine and a couple other outlets. Um, and what I mean, I guess by on, then normally they say, what is entrepreneuring? Right. And I say, uh, that is me building my third six figure company right now, making it seven figures close. And they say, what are we doing? What are you doing? And I tell them that our company builds, takes designs and makes mobile apps for people for only 200 bucks a month. And they say, okay, that's amazing. I have an app idea. And then it goes from there. Perfect. So building companies, uh, writing, podcasting, those are kind of my outlets and, and is, is the bedrock of who I am. Okay, super. So tell us a little bit about uh, a couple of the companies you currently have. <sighs> yeah, so uh, a couple of the other companies, one that's not around anymore, it was Air 5. And that kind of pivoted maybe 14 different times. Uh, we did get that to six figures of revenue and it's a product based company. So that kind of means that kind of means something to me. Sure. Um, uh, when you sell products and you're you're establishing a market for those products, uh, be it their digital or physical products, I think that's something more than just like selling the the membership course that you're doing or whatever. You're getting these people to sign up for something that's motivation that they could possibly get for free. That is. I just want to make that little distinction that it's a tech company. Um, the second company. What was, came what was the of, product there? What was the product? There, oh, Jeremy? okay. Well, I'll tell you. So it started as a digital business card mm-hmm. and I ended up pivoting it into at one point a, uh, well, it went from a digital business card to like an alumni networking app for alumni groups. Then it went to event organizers. Then it went to an influencing or an influencer email capture platform. Then it went to a drink subscription where people would meet people and I would pay for their drinks. Okay. And then it went to, what did it end as? I forget what it, but there's like maybe I pivoted that company 12 to 14 different times and and monetized it five figures a piece at every stage. Mm -hmm. And was that your first company? That was my very first company. Yeah, I was a I was really poor when that company started. And how old and then, how old are you when you started that company? Twenty six. Okay. So even though I was an entrepreneur since birth, I kind of got lost along the way, uh, fell into accounting, and really didn't wake up until my now wife was mentioning that I lost a spark that I once had in college. Mm. So that kind of was like, what the heck is that going on? So. Uh, I left my job making a good amount of money here in Los Angeles and went to work for my first venture backed startup for 32 grand, 60 hours a week, no benefits, no nothing and loved every second of it. It was a drug for me. Mm, yeah. So that's when I knew entrepreneur, I'm, I'm back, I'm back in the game. Yeah. It just took me a little longer than I thought. So in that first company, what was the name of it again? Air five, air five. Can you can you pick one or two or three lessons that you learned from that? Uh, people are only as loyal as the amount of money you pay them. Okay. <laughs> so, so you can get those people for that thirty-two grand, or you can get people for the contract for you for free for a little while, or some equity, even equity. You could throw equity at people 
and they will only be as loyal for a certain amount of time. Like a, there's a there's a formula there. I just don't know what it is off the top of my head, but they will eventually something will happen and they will give up because they are not intrinsically motivated to the mission of the company like you are or like your business partner is. So you've got to make sure you've got to like really get good at auditing other people's motivations. Um, that to me is something incredibly, incredibly clear and yeah. something I learned growing that company. So let, let's talk about that a little bit because that's, that's kind of interesting, right? So what you're saying is, is that the founder or the co-founders, uh, they're the ones who, who, who really believe in this idea and concept and, and are willing to put everything on the line, so, so to speak, to, to make yeah. it happen. And, and fundamentally, for the most part, 90% of the time or maybe 95% of the time, other folks are, are employees. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you, can, you can buy some loyalty in various different ways. It could be cash <laughs> compensation. It could be uh, stock options, whatever. It could be a car. Uh, but at some point in time, that has a diminishing return. Absolutely. And, and uh, so is this where leadership kind of comes in, sort of how we started this conversation, right? So having, having strong leadership skills enables you to maybe get more runway <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, of, out of those, out of those uh, stock options or yeah. uh, compensation, et cetera. So I, 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 I said on, on one podcast um, that the mark of a good leader was the ability to get someone to work for free. So if you can actually get someone to, even for a short amount of time, get someone to actually follow you and give you, I think about this, time is the most valued commodity around. Like you cannot get that time back. So if you can convince anyone by any means to give you their precious commodity of time you are in a you are in a school all your own like getting anyone to do anything in their free not imagine think about this their free time they're giving you mm-hmm. so even if they have like a full-time job and then they choose in their free time to give you six hours a day five hours a day two hours a day man have you proven something to them that they need to follow you or they need to follow that thing you're building. Yeah. That is what I think leadership is. I, and again, there's a lot of variables and there's a lot of moving parts within that. But if you can, and as I'm thinking this, like if you can get people to do something, even for like a low, low, low wage mark of a great leader. Yeah. So as you were saying that it it makes me think back to uh, the first time I read Tom Sawyer. Right. And, and he got all those people to whitewash the fence <laughs> sure. for free. I thought he was a genius. You know, <laughs> it's either that or you're like uh, you're mind tricking people. Ah, again, that's terrific. If you can Jedi mind trick some people like uh, good, yeah. you're a great leader. Yeah. So so that was that was company one. And, and so where did where did the journey go after that? So. After that, after that company kind of died, maybe. Um, I mean, it never really died, but it kind of morphed into the next thing I did. I started a podcast called Not Boring Business, and I felt like I just needed to make an entity around it, like like a brand or whatever. So I started a company called Not Boring Business um, LLC, and through that company. We so we started our first product, which was business in a box, mm-hmm. um, late or early last year, so 2018. And through that, we learned a lot about building digital products and SaaS companies. So after we did that, so by the end of last year, we had over six figures of revenue um, in not even a full year, but we were dangerously becoming close to a dev shop, what people would call a dev shop. So it's so weird how each one of my companies has affected the next, but that's kind of how you do it. Um, And then earlier this year, we wanted to productize that company more. And as it morphed, it evolved to more and more and more and be more and more, more productized. Uh, We had to incorporate this new company, V1. So, and then we raised a little venture capital 
And that's already six figures. And we just we just launched that company in February. Soft launched that company. We're kind of in beta. It's kind of funny, the trickle down of what starting companies from nothing is. It's almost like V1 is just a continuation of my very first company. Yeah, yeah. But with like everything I've learned in the market. And that's kind of how we focus the products on people is you get your initial build. You'll learn and test the market with that build. And then you come back and add on to your product based on market feedback. That's and, the best way to do it. And and for these companies, have you had a, a core group of uh, individuals who have, have been by your side through this? Or has how, how has that evolved? Yeah. Yes and no. Um, I do have I do have like a bench or a roster of people that when I do have money, I go to. And it's kind of it's kind of buying now their free time. Um, but if I have full time positions and this isn't me being overly confident or anything, there are so many people that would quit their job right now to work for me for a decent wage that had worked for me for free in the past. Yeah. So I'm kind of I want to prove them all right. There's at least 20, 15 to 20 people that I go you can help with this and you can help with this. So like I will just automatically plug them in. So it's great to build that network and it's great to build uh, kind of like what I call your bench players. The ones that when called upon they will come and they will perform, become that six man of the year. Yeah, so how do you talk to me a little bit about that process and and sort of mm -hmm. when you first came to the realization that that you could do this and you and you had this ability and that people were willing to sort of step up to the plate for, you know, um, below so from market. Like an, an, okay. Yeah. Right. So at first when I was doing things that it's kind of maybe my energetic or my attitude or my charm, whatever you want to call it, um, a joy to be around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if you're an asshole, if you're, well, if you're a jerk, yes. Right. So there we go. If you're a jerk to people, they won't want to be around you. So I think there's, there's the challenge of having, uh, more of an like an internal ethos where people just kind of want to be around what where you are and then they want to help you do the things you want to do because and they almost after after many meetings and many times that you have these meetings with these people and they're like dude they're constantly comparing you and being in your world means to being in their world and the other people around them and you almost over time, you build this, um, you build this like FOMO, right? Where these people are almost afraid of missing out mm -hmm. of what you're creating and what you're doing in your world. And this is the first time I'm kind of thinking about this and it sounds brilliant, <laughs> but, but I think you're just creating this gravitational force and eventually, uh, people will be attracted to it yeah. more and more. But you've got to be careful because when things get more stressful as a CEO, I almost catch myself losing that likability or that charm or that gravitational force where I, I'm thinking to myself, no, like you can't do this. And you're kind of a jerk. And you're like, if you lose that, it's kind of a hard situation to be in, right? Because you you want to be a disciplinarian and it's kind of once you get people in your company and you allow them to they if they almost frame you as a friend that's not good either and i'm learning so the more the farther you build in your companies if they think they're always have you know it goes back to like if you think about like the open door policy with a ceo yes. or like any any leader i just don't believe that's a good strategy i don't believe the whole these people don't need offices open office space I really think that there's a reason there should be a, a line or a fence around the CEO or the C-suites or these types of people. I just, until I learn more, it's there always needs to be some, and maybe this comes across wrong, but like some level of fear. Mm -hmm. um, some level of, I'm, I need to perform to do well and I need to perform to not like lose my job. Yeah. Right, like, or not hit this well, and not be able to afford yeah. that. M maybe some other words for that are are respect and accountability. 
Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So right, of, oftentimes, oftentimes, you know, we're not held. We as an employee are not yeah. held accountable. And and I and you know, most of the times, I know when I've screwed up, I was usually the first one to know. <laughs> right? <laughs> sure. Right. If you're if you're self aware enough. Yeah. And 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 what and, and as you were saying that, I mean, this whole notion of what you were talking about uh, about that what you 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 radiate and transmit what you are feeling inside right you're you're mm. you're tra- you're radiating that outside of your body and other people are picking that up so if you're you're grumpy inside it's yeah. going to come out as grumpy right Absolutely. and this notion of being self-aware enough to say okay i i'm walking out of my office i got to put on my I'm going to, you know, happy face. I don't mean it. Yeah. I don't mean to right. trivialize it, but I got to put on my happy face because that's the energy and that's the persona I need to transmit to the rest yeah. of the individuals in this organization. I, I made, so in our last office, I had an, I had a door that was right by the exit door, like, and it was a back door. So I could sneak out mm-hmm. if I needed to, or guests could come up and just sneak up to my office. So it was, it's interesting to play on that team dynamic. You want to save face, but sometimes as a CEO and a CEO with a few employees now, and it's growing where they're just, if you need to almost, I want to be really real with them, but some people it's on them. If they can take that real feedback or that real, like, Hey, we lost money this week. Yeah. Now, are you going to be demoralized? Or is that going to motivate you to be better? So I'm kind of learning by trial and error. Part of me is like, no, I, I, I'm weeding out you then. Like if that, if you're someone who's going, if that's going to demotivate you at this stage where we're like 10 people, it is constantly where you need to weed out those, those people and get the best people on staff. Um, because that kind of stuff early on should motivate you as an early employee at a company. And, and, it's okay if people leave. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, that, that, yeah. That's okay. And to some extent, you hope that individuals can sort of self-select and the organization can self-select for mm-hmm. things that fit within its culture. I like that. I like how you worded and, that. And, and, and that's important. And it's okay. It's, it, yeah. it, this doesn't have to be a place where it, it, we, we have this diversity across personalities <laughs> Amen. That fit in. We don't, you know, it, yeah. it's okay. Right? I agree with that. I wholeheartedly think that there are certain triggers and I've never, I've never thought about it like this where the company itself is self-selecting. Like I really do believe, I mean, you hear that if you hire wrong in your, in your early stages of your company, it is more detrimental than anything right. else. Cause that sets the, the culture future value. Correct. Yep. So like, I want people to know the culture here is one that what doesn't we it not intimidating or harassing, but it's like it's real. It's authentic. I want people to come here and be motivated. If it is something where you can we can be friends, but I can tell you where you stand. I think there's a lot of I think I just don't know if there's certain amount of there's a certain amount of people that can handle that. I I guess I'm saying there is a certain amount of people that can handle that. It's can you find those people fast enough while you're growing? Right. And then I need to audit myself as a CEO and grow. Right. Right. You know, you hear, I've heard a lot of people talk about businesses as, you know, we're, we're like a family. Mm. Um, and, and I, and I think there's some value to that. However, sure. in a family, you don't get to decide who's in the family and who's not, <laughs> but in a business you do. So yeah. you you can apply these family like relationships, uh, but in a situation where you still get to decide who's in the family and who's not. Oh yeah, and if we go all in on this, it's like mommy and daddy need their own time, and right. mommy and daddy have their own offices, their own bedroom. Right. You know what I mean? Mommy and dad. There's some things we don't tell the kids. That's right. right? Like there are a lot of th- like we started. Mommy and daddy started this family. You know what I mean? So like if I we go all in on this where I just need to start talking to myself as daddy in the company where I when I'm fine <laughs> and I'm fine with this. So like there's a lot of places you can go 
with the and within that analogy. So the the do you think that's a good way to approach a startup? Is that family dynamic, or are you just saying that like some people think about it that way? Well, I I think um, so. Let, let let me let me let me uh, talk a little bit about my experience there. So. Uh, in early in my career, I, I worked at big companies, General Electric and IBM. Got you. And work was work, and personal life was personal life, and and that was sort of the culture in those big companies in the seventies. And so there wasn't a lot of, uh, except for you know once a year family picnic with everybody at the company. There really sure. wasn't a lot of interaction. And and then I worked and started a couple of smaller companies, entrepreneurial businesses, where we had a lot more of a family-like atmosphere. Sure. And I think they both work, but you have to be consistent in the way you mm. approach it. You can't sure. you, you, you can't be like family on one day <laughs> and then the following Agreed. week sort of, yep. oh, no, 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 we're, oh, we're not family. No, you can't. I'm sorry. You, you got to be here tomorrow <laughs> or, yeah, or whatever, absolutely. right? You can't. You can't mix those. You can't mix those two environments. You got to decide which one you want, which one works for you, because number one, it'll attract people for whom that environment works, and right. you got to be consistent about it. So that's that's how I feel about. it. I don't think there's right or wrong. You know, there's yeah. there's there's the militar the militaristic way of running a business. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? The mach- the machine. Yeah, and then there's a the the family business a way of running it, right? They're they're very <laughs> different cultures, very different approaches. They can both build successful businesses and they can both build awful businesses. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Let me let me take it a step farther though. Like early on, I think I mean cuz it it evolves in stages, right? Or it changes or it's dynamic. Yeah. So like at this stage, we have to stay consistent for an X amount of time. So if I'm guilty of really doing anything, it's figuring out that culture both within myself and reverberating it through at the stage of company that we're at um, and saying, hey, I've allowed, I've had to trade on friendships to do things for cheap, right? Or um, which I don't really even like to do. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I have limited resources as an entrepreneur. Everyone does. Even if you think you have unlimited resources, you don't. So, dynamics change and they become more corporate as you get as you grow as a company so from now until 10 people almost everyone is reporting to me right and then once you get that 12th 15th 20 you're now thinking there's levels that are being created so like you almost have like an extended family if we keep going with this thing then in 30 you're getting the the you're getting the the christmas card you know yeah, what I mean? You, you, there's just, family you only see once a year. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. So it's just on holidays you're seeing these family. Right. When, right. When, there was, you, when there was five of you, you saw each other every day. You had right. lunch together. Right. Every day. Exactly. We shipped in we shipped in lunch. We got bagels together. Our right. thing Sam's bagels down the street. So I, I've so seen like, that happen numerous times in companies that I've started. And and what the way I think about it is as organizations get larger, jobs get narrower. Mm. Oh, right. And those first five people who we all had lunch together every day, and that was actually our communication table. That's where everyone knew everything that was going on. And then all of a sudden, once you get to 10 or 15, you can't all have lunch together every day. And all of a sudden, people say, well, I don't know what's going on. Right. And yeah. it's a difficult adjustment for some individuals. And and your job starts getting narrower and narrower and narrower. Yeah. And that's an you adjustment. You start to bring others and you we we have it to where like some people get crowded out. That's right. Right. Where a a lot of people come on and they go, Great, I'm doing this cross functional role and that's what we need right now. But now we need someone above you, below you, on the side of you that you either need to manage down, manage across, or manage up. So it and people only look at like management is one sided, but it's truly four sides, right? You need to manage yourself, you need to manage down, you need to manage across, you need to manage up. So like if you're if on a team of five you're only managing yourself, uh you're kind of screwed when you the company grows and now you need to manage down and then you need to manage out, which is to me, and then you need to manage up, which is to someone else. So like 
there's always external stakeholders and um, uh, values that need to be approached. And if you can't, if you can't stick with it, you kind of get replaced. And other people look at it as like a bad thing. I look at it as just like a necessary thing. Like either adapt or die, I guess. It's kind of the evolution. Well, I, I also think there's this self-awareness element to this. Mm. And what I mean by that is I know for myself, I'm very good in working in organizations that are like less than 50 people. Right? Yeah. One to 50, that's- maybe 75, right? I'm good at that. <laughs> and I'm good at some place where there's 10 or 20,000 people. But in between sure. those... I have a hard time. Mm. I mean, I've just learned that over the years that, that I can thrive in really small place, small intimate places. And I can thrive in big organizations because I can figure out how to maneuver around those big, massive places and get stuff done. Isn't that, I mean, you, they do, I mean, legally when you hit 50 people, just regulations change. That's right. So like it's, it is a, that's probably the worst ball game to be in is, 50 to a thousand people. I think you're right. Like that is the, it is the, it is the most, that's where CEOs get replaced. That's where everything starts to become more corporate, more structured, more by the book, more manualed. I've seen this hat where you start to get in, where you start to get, uh, I banking people that want like, that want to be your CFO, right? Where the VCs come in and clean house and they want to put a board member and an observer at your, at your meetings. It's these types of things that happen um, that kind of and now you're like, whoa, there's levels at, oh, you can't get to the CEO. And it's like, uh, yeah, dude, you're you're employee 30 and now we're up to 300. You've stayed where you're at, but I've got to adapt. It's just time as well. So like everyone's role is kind of increasing, but more it's going way more deep and increasing as a as a result. So it's just it's just very funny to see that between 50 and 1000 people or 50 and 250 and 500 and 1000 it's just the, the complexity yeah. there and it kind of becomes a stable and to your other point when you hit thousands of employees it's almost the structures there uh everyone knows everyone is lockstep it's a machine that's working now that's why it takes those companies, companies that have thousands of employees, really, really long time to get back or react to market forces. Right. To like adapt their product because it goes through 18 levels of command. That's right. And uh, it's easier for startups, the people that are 50, below 50 employees to move and compete. That's right. But I, I also think that another, another important element of this conversation is that as an individual know your sweet spot and and you may yeah. be you may be an individual you know what what works for me is start up up to 50 people and then after that mm-hmm. it's time for me to leave and go find another startup to join and and Absolutely. that's okay and for other people it's i don't want to work in a company unless there's at least 10,000 employees and they're, I, and they're it, both okay to each is yeah to each his own exactly i'm i'm saying that like most of I've once said to myself, once we get an HR person, I want to sell it. I'm done. Yeah. Like once you start getting that kind of structure, but it is around 40, 50 people. Right. And then another part of me gets jealous when I see someone ringing the bell at NYSE and going, I would love to take a company from nothing to public. That would be cool. Uh, and I so, agree, and I agree, agree with you, but that's also the, the back to the way we started this conversation uh, 30 minutes ago. That's the Beethoven. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's very it's the very, very rare individual who's there from startup to ring yep. the bell. And yep. and you can name them on one or one hand, probably. Right. There's not a lot of them. Yeah. And they're they're very it's it's the person where that gene was turned on. And and yeah, uh, they're pretty uh. rare. But we all we all idolize those folks because we think, oh, look, at that's the ultimate. Yeah. And, and that may be the ultimate for them but not the ultimate for me. Can I, is it a bad thing if, because when people say, oh, it's not good to be like, I like what, how you said idolized. It's got, mm-hmm. You got to be idolized. It's never about money for me. But man, when I hear you say that, I'm like, oh, I want to be idolized as an entrepreneur. You, I want, 
I want to be an idle entrepreneur mm-hmm. for people. You know what I mean? Like, is that a bad thing? You can't tell me money's a bad motivator and then I want to be idolized is a bad thing, right? Is that bad? You so, tell me. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the, <laughs> I don't know, but I think there's, the way that I characterize it is I would like to be a role model for people, I think, which is slightly different than being idolized. Okay, that sounds like semantics. Mm. I, you want to be, be an idol, too. I feel no, like. I, I think, I think an, idol, an idol does no wrong. Mm. In their own head or in like other people's? In other people's heads. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right? I think an idol does no wrong. Or you got to do some really bad stuff before you lose your crud. <laughs> Right. But I, I think, I think to me, a role model is slightly different than being an idol. I feel like a role model though, is almost, it puts you in a category where like, you don't do anything wrong. No, I I disagree. I disagree a hundred percent, man. There's, there's plenty, (laughs) there's plenty of role models that I think that have fallen flat on their faces because they screwed up. But the question is then what do you, then what do you do? I'm a good role model. The the important thing is what do you do after you after you screw? Got up? you, sure. I normally well just well I want to answer that for a sec. Normally when I mess up, I really try to cop to it really fast mm-hmm. and know that like I messed up, we failed this customer, we failed this person. Let's refund them that month even though we don't give refunds. Let's try to make this better. Sometimes you just can't make them happy, and like those are those weed clients that you need to just like weed out at the same time. You kind of, you need to you kiss a few frogs before you get to your prince. Right. Yep. And it's just a natural. And, and I stage. think that by refunding that money to that customer that, you know, you didn't have to, that's when you get, that's when you develop a customer for life. And that's when you develop loyalty. Maybe. I yeah, think, I think I it is. Sure. Right. Uh, you're certainly not going to develop it if you don't refund it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So you're at a crossroads there. The choice is refund or not. You right. don't refund it. You know you're not getting a customer for life. If you do, at <laughs> least you have a probability, probably better than 50-50, that you will get a customer for life. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, all right. 50-50. Right. You're sure. You, you get some probability. All right. I'll see you there. Those are those are good odds. I'll take those. I'll take 50-50 on uh, losing a couple hundred bucks. And, and I, and I think that, that that's one of the things, you know, I've had a few experiences in my life where companies have really done good. In other words, they've, they've gone above and beyond what they had to do. Uh, when I bought something and something broke or, you know, it was outside the warranty period or, or whatever. Yeah. And I have become loyal customers to those brands. Got you. No, I agree. Every time I walk in to the Apple store, with my headphones that have clearly been sweated all over and they give me a new pair back cause they don't work. I'm like, I'm a Apple customer for life. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's just funny that early in early in a stage when you're vehemently fighting some of these customers, like, Oh my gosh, we did X, Y, Z, just like you said. And they come back and are like, no, but I said this. And it's mm-hmm. like, you didn't go through the process. That's why I got lost. And you're like, they're still upset. That's right. And it's like, you can't really afford to give hundreds of dollars back, but you're like, oh, we might, we just, we have to. Right. Like, or <clears throat> do you go back and forth with someone who clearly did something wrong? So it's like, I don't know, role model or idol. <laughs> <laughs> Good customer service. Because I think you have to remember that in that moment in time for that customer, yeah. and they're complaining about something to you, you walk into the Apple store with your headphones that don't work anymore. At that yeah. moment in time, that's the most important thing in your life. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. So I agree with it completely. So if you can if you as the company can do good by that, take it take mm-hmm. I'll say the word advantage of that situation, if you will. Right. Right? That's where I think you can build loyalty, you can build real brand awareness, and you can build customers that'll keep coming back over and over and over again. And yeah. If you look at these companies that do that kind of stuff, like an Apple, like a Patagonia, the list goes on, they build that into their pricing. I agree with you. I agree it's with you. It's a strategy. Yes. It's a strategy. Correct. They're not yep. the low cost they're they're not they're not the low cost seller yep. of those goods and services. 
right? You're right. They You're build right. it into their pricing because they say, we know we're going to do this. And this is how, yep. this is what we want to be. I might take, that might be the most valuable piece on any podcast I've been on in the last several weeks. That is the most valuable piece of advice. I, I've come across and say, hey, we can do your app for the most affordable price that anyone, no one will be able to touch. And people still want the service of the $50,000 app. And I go, that's almost impossible, but we're trying. So let's work together. Let's focus on this. Let's do this together. Let's have an agreement, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're getting on at this beta stage. We're helping you. You will have your app out. You will be able to test the market with it. Um, and it's funny to, to, to hear it, uh, in that context. Well, you have to decide whether, you know, you have to decide on what, what them prices, baby, what your value add is. And if you want to compete on price, boy, that's a, that's a glide path to going out of business. Oh, sure. No, I get it. And it's not that, that cheap either. You know, it's still like a few hundred dollars a month. Yes. So like, but it's still just cheaper. And you want to know what's funny is we, when we what happened two months ago, we released a premium uh, package at a thousand a month. More people have been interested in the thousand dollar package than they have been at the three hundred. And you want to know who we hear the most complaints from? The three hundred dollar ones. Three hundred dollar ones. Right. So I mean, there is a law out there. There is a law of pricing pages where. Put your price. What is the? There's a SaaS thing. One of my mentors told me. Um, when you're when in doubt, double or something. Mm-hmm. Double the double the price of your set. I don't forget what it was exactly, but uh, and he'll be upset at me. But uh, it's like you charge six hundred dollars, and then you can either negotiate a hundred down or do whatever just to figure out where that price point is, and then most people will just pay it. And I'm like, oh man. So we did that, and boom. There you go. Most people are paying a thousand bucks. Yeah, I mean, again, you, you wanna you wanna be Walmart or do you wanna be Macy's or do you wanna be Neiman Marcus? Right. They're I don't all, know. I think they're all viable markets. Absolutely, right. and I wouldn't mind being any one of them. Right. So you just got to figure out Although, what you want to be, and then you got to stick to your guns. Absolutely. And that's kind of what we're figuring out right now, which is a very, I also think it's a very interesting place to be in. Like this is what makes entrepreneurship really, really fun for me Mm -hmm. is being able to figure out what you want to be, where you want to go, what you want your brand to be, what you want your pricing to be, testing the market to figure out how elastic it is. These types of things, real world, right outside of the books, outside of the learnings, the courses, just doing it. Is, is more valuable than anything out there. Yeah. So, Jeremy, we're, we've been at this uh, 40 minutes, and so I want to slowly start wrapping it up. So what's cool. next for you? I think, uh, well, what's I'll, I'll start with what's current. So what's current is I'm going through this stage where I literally believe the sky is falling, and I, I at the same time, I think, oh, my gosh, Based on our traction and based on where we at, where customer sentiment with investor sentiment, we're a billion dollar company. Like what? I'm so it's and it's again it's that it's that devilish dance of entrepreneurship and the stage we're at, where I don't really have anyone to go to. I'm the I'm I'm a single founder building this company, where I'm on a daily basis. I think, okay, we're screwed. The ship's going down. And then at the end of the day, I'm thinking, oh, based on like two or three triggers, I'm like, we're a we're a billion dollar company. Like, oh, my God, these people want to invest half a million dollars for the These people want to invest one point five million. Oh, my God. These customers just bought. We had a we had a we had a fifteen and a half thousand dollar day in recurring. So, like, there's so many things that are actually we signed this contract with a Fortune 100 company. All these things that happen. So. I'm thinking you're going to see me in New York. We'll grab coffee and uh, I'll be ringing the bell at the NYSE. All right. I like I like that uh, image. I'm, I'm putting it into the universe. Yeah. You want to put a time scale on that sucker? Four years. Okay. Four years. We're- 
we're gonna come we're gonna come back and i'm i'm gonna i will still be ceo and we will take this bugger public yeah you 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 broke up again i'm what do you sorry think about that? jeremy uh so uh, the last thing i the last thing i heard i am gonna i'm coming to new york we're gonna grab coffee i'm setting it right now four to five years four to five yeah i'm holding myself i'll be in new york me and you will be clanking coffee cups and I will then leave you to go ring the bell at the NYSE. All right. You heard it here, folks. Uh, right from Jeremy's uh, mouth, direct to your ears. Uh, we're going <laughs> to hold them to it now, man. All it's, right. It's now right. forever embodied. And uh, yep. hundreds of thousands of people will have listened to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amen. All Amen. Right. Here's, your, here's your idol. Yeah. Ring the bell. So, hey, Jeremy, is there anything I should have asked you that I that I didn't? Anything else you want to add to this? Uh no, you were a great, this is a great interview. This is a great job. You've done a great job with this. Well, thank you very much. I like much. the flow. Yeah, it was, this a, is, it was a good kind of rambling conversation. And uh, No, I, part of the reason why I like podcasts is because I regret not recording more of my rambling conversations with people at coffee houses. Yeah. And when I walk away with something like this, I feel like there was one of those lightning in a bottle's. Well, like great. That's this gracious, was good. Gracious does, of you to no say that. Structure and I love I love this as far as how you guided everything. Uh I could learn a little lessons from you. So I appreciate your guidance, my good sir. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. It was a pleasure having you uh, on the podcast. You were a great guest and I can echo all the things that uh, you just said uh about our conversation as well. So Well, uh, thanks. Yep, and uh 4 to 5 years New York Stock Exchange ringing Boom. the bell. Be there. Boom. Jeremy okay. Redman. Thanks. <laughs> hey, Mike. So uh, I thought that was a great conversation. And uh, so what do you think about Jeremy's take on leadership? What's, uh, what are your thoughts regarding leadership? He made a lot of really interesting and thought-provoking points, Bella. And you're right. You, too, sure covered a lot of ground. Um you know, it's this whole idea, can you learn to be a leader? Um, and I, you know, love the, the challenges that he threw up there about classes in leadership and the value of those. And I guess my thinking of this has evolved over time. And, you know, my sense is, I guess when I was his age, um, and, and even in, up until recently, I thought, yeah, uh, leadership class is a waste of time. There's no point in learning leadership theories or even best practices. Um, and until I met somebody of, a few years ago who really, I thought, taught leadership really well, um, and I'm changing my tune. So I think you can, a great leadership class is important and because I totally agree that you learn leadership by doing it. But what you can develop is a structured framework for kind of understanding the knowledge and skill set that you need to be a leader. And that I, by that, I mean communication and motivation and having a vision and getting people around you to learn and learning yourself and knowing. We see this a lot these days, knowing when to apologize and how to apologize, uh, how to make decisions, how to engage with your employees, or your customers, your suppliers. All these things are part of being a great leader. And yeah, you can't learn that in a classroom. But you can kind of start to understand, I think, and have a framework in your own mind of the different components of leadership, where you sit. And I guess to me, it's not having one set of leadership skills. It's having a range and then figuring out the context in which you need to apply a specific leadership skill or tool in a specific situation. And I think a classroom can be really good to organize those thoughts and practice so that when you get into a situation, you're prepared. You have a framework in your mind. You've done some role playing. You have kind of a path and you still have to always react and adjust and things like this, but it kind of gives you this framework. Um, and so there are some really good leadership teachers that I saw do that for students. And I'm like, here, here's how to be a good leader. It's here's how to observe leadership. And here's how to understand the situations in which leadership is needed. And when you take from your toolkit what you've got, then you can apply with maximum efficiency the mix of knowledge and skills to best suit a given situation. So I totally agree with what he said about leadership. But to me, that's what I would evolve. What he said, that's how kind of I've been thinking about it over the last 25 years that I've been, that I've been a, an academic and been a business person. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I'd, I'll, I'll uh, riff on a little bit about what you said. Uh, one of them is that I think 
you, you do need to practice, just like you said, and, and you can develop these tools or you can obtain these tools by reading books, going to classes, etc. cetera. Um, but I also think that, at least for, for my experience, I've been in various different leadership roles. Some of them were in organizations that I helped start. Uh, other ones were I parachuted into an organization and, uh, uh, you know, was designated the leader. And I think one of the one of the important skills is sort of reading the audience. In other words, reading the organization and understanding uh, what motivates the organization, what what's important to the members of that organization, what do they cherish, what are things that will be very challenging to change, what other things are more changeable, and then very importantly sort of adopting or adapting, I should say, adapting your skill set so that it works within that organization. Because as I reflect back, I, I used very different types of leadership styles in different organizations, not just dependent upon the organization, but also dependent upon the situation that organization was in at that period of time or that moment in time. Uh, in some of those instances, uh, quick action was a necessity. Uh, there was a crisis that you're solving. And the tool set that I use in a crisis is slightly different than a tool set when there is no crisis. Uh, or the, you know, what's, the, what's the degree and sense of urgency that you need in the things that you're trying to accomplish? Um, so I, I think you know, those are, again, things that you can learn. And they are things that you can develop a set of tools, like you said so eloquently, Mike, uh, that you can then build on and use and practice. So that's that's my two cents. What about when the organization that you're in changes? So you're, I totally agree with what you're saying, Bela. Different organizations have different needs, and you got to read those. And if you make a mistake, there's a, a big cost to that, right? But what about when, as your organization grows or shrinks or pivots? Same deal or different? Oh, you you got to modify. I mean, and, and I can tell you this, this you know, when – couple of companies we started, we, we started with three of us or four of us, and, and we grew to, you know, 60, 70 people, uh, almost 101 of them. And I, I, I remember that, you know, for the first six months, when there was 10 people or less, we had lunch together every day. And that was our communication channel. That's how stuff got done, got communicated. Well, once there was 20 people, we couldn't have lunch together every day. And all of a sudden, your communication channels change uh, and you start putting in other people that are responsible for areas. You start designating individuals. And as I said in my conversation with Jeremy, as organizations grow, most jobs, most positions get narrower. They have a narrower focus. The CEO's position keeps broadening, <laughs> broader and broader mm -hmm. and broader. But most other most other jobs or, or positions get narrower in what they do. Um, and so that's not only adjustment for the people who are involved in that and their jobs are getting narrower because if they've been there since day one, they're going, well, wait a minute, I used to do all of these things and now I only do two of them. Well, you know, I, I, I have this feeling of I'm losing stuff. Um, but as a CEO, you go from managing individuals who are performing work to managing managers and and you well, you know how the organization grows and mm -hmm. and the skill set you need i think is really different that's why there's very few individuals who stay in a ceo or presidential position from day 1 till ipo <laughs> that's a rare individual who's who who can adapt their their skill set and their leadership as as that organization grows in that in, in that size, so I think I think it's very dynamic. It's very fluid, and that's the challenge. It's figuring out what you need to do today and, and tomorrow, because it's probably different than what you did last week. Yeah, situational awareness and awareness of change, and yeah, there's no textbook that says here's how to do this. So exactly, cool. 
What about culture? Let's switch. Let's switch topics for a second because I, they're really, in my view, very related. But Jeremy said some interesting things about the culture of the organization. What's your take on that? Well, I I think uh, culture is extremely important. Um, if you're starting a business, you have an opportunity to to sort of establish that the way you want. Uh, if you're if you're joining an existing organization, it probably already has some sort of culture. So you have to figure out how to work within it. You got to, again, figure out what, what things are sacred that cannot be changed, what things can be changed. And I think um, you also, if you want a particular type of culture, family style or militaristic style or something in between, uh, and even within those, those styles, there's various different flavors. Um, I think you have to work at maintaining it. I think it's a constant effort to keep reinforcing that this is this is the culture we want. We want to empower people. You just can't say it once a year at the annual company meeting. You have to keep saying it and doing it over and over and over and over again. And I, and I it's not just saying it, it's saying it and doing it. If you want and evaluating it and rewarding That's for right. It. Exactly right. So if you want to have if you want to empower people you just can't say, okay, all of you are now empowered. <laughs> From this day forward, everyone in your organization is empowered. That's a, that's a good statement, but it's not a sufficient statement to, to do that. You have to change behaviors, and changing behaviors is, one I think, one of the most difficult things there is in leadership and management. Yeah, and you got that means you got to figure out how to measure some of these things. And I totally understand that there's certain things about culture that are difficult or impossible to measure, but you got to get some things measured so you can evaluate and reward people on it. Period. Yep, ab- absolutely. And and there are tools that that help you do that. You know, there are there are uh, experts uh, who who you can uh, hire, if you will, to help you put together ways of managing that ways of evaluating and getting feedback because there's the there's the culture that I think the organization has and that I get to experience as the president or CEO and then there's all the other cultures that I don't know about mm-hmm. Sub-cultures. <laughs> the subcultures yep. exactly so so how do you how do you figure that stuff out you know so oftentimes they say that you know especially as an organization grows in size the the CEO knows the least about what's actually going on in the company, mm-hmm. and 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 that's a challenging thing to work through. Yeah. So these are interesting kind of concepts that Jeremy talked about. So from the eyes of a serial entrepreneur, really, I liked his story about how he got out, went to accounting. Uh, his now wife said, "You've lost something," and he said, "I got to get back in it." I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but so here he is, you know, he's learned these cool lessons about leadership and about culture and they fed into, you know, he said a couple times, Oh, every, my latest company is the amalgamation of everything that I've done so far, both in terms of product, but it was very clear. Both he's learned some interesting lessons about leadership and culture along the way. And I thought it was great that you got him to, uh, in a really neat back and forth, uh, to elucidate, uh, some of his lessons learned over time. Um, I don't know. How, how do you want to wrap this up, Baylor? What do you think of the big takeaways? Well, uh, let me see. I think one of them is uh, you got to figure out what your leadership style is. Uh, you have to be sensitive and tuned into what leadership style the organization you are now part of is receptive to and will work within that organization. And again, it's this is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. It changes with time. Um, so I think you, you really need to be you have to have good antenna. You have to have good reception, uh, and, and have a good sense of what's going on in the organization, and then distill that down into specific actions that can help move that organization forward. And I, and I think that's really what leadership is, and it's different in in various different organizations and points in time. Um, I don't know. That's my two cents. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. As my good friend Farzad Mahmoudi, who's a professor at Clarkson, likes to say about supply chains, one size doesn't fit all. The same holds for leadership and culture. It's one size doesn't fit all. And the the better you are at reading the situation and adapting, 
uh, the more successful you're going to be. And yeah, you have to have that core. You have to stand for something, um, but you got to be adaptable and flexible too. And that balance of core values and integrity and honesty and transparency um, has to be balanced with the uh, ability to, to, to dart and weave uh, along the margins as the conditions change. Yeah, agreed. You want to wrap this one up, Mike? Sure. Uh, listeners, thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed uh, this and found it interesting and thought-provoking as we did. Uh, as normal, we have two small requests. First, if you have any questions about what we discussed today, uh, suggestions about future topics or potential guests, please get in touch. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Uh, and second, if you like what we're doing here, please hit subscribe or like on your podcast app. Uh, and even might want to be radical and write us a quick review. That would be fantastic. Uh, and if you know no other people that might be interested in what we're talking about, uh, please share us with them. Thank you for spending time with us this week. Uh, we look forward to uh, having you join us for our next episode. So signing off from upstate New York, this is Bela. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Thanks, Bela. See ya. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.